This week on Writers, Inc. You know, you, you need to have a presence in, you know, all the trades and, and in, in, in that regard. And it definitely helps. And it helps with the, you know, publishers, you know, things get nominated. They do reach out to those authors and it can really be a benefit in that way. So, it's you know, it's a positive. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. How you doing this week, J.D.? I'm doing well. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing okay, man. It's uh, it's summer. It feels good. Yeah, it, it's actually eighty something here today. Which you know, in Florida, like you would put on a jacket for that. Um, <laughs> but but here, like eighty is that's hot. Yeah. And like mo- most houses in New England, um, they don't have air conditioning, which really surprised me when we first moved up here. Um, you know, and but like right now, I see like my neighbor's house across the street. They've got half their windows open. Um, they've got a little unit in one of the windows that's probably cranking, trying to cool the whole house down. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we actually installed air conditioning when we bought this place um, just because I, I just can't take it. You know, like even though it's not often, it, it, you know, it happens enough where, you know, like it, it's just it's hot and sticky and yeah. it, it's well, well worth the investment. It was a little pricey to get it in here, but I'm glad we did. You had duct work in the house already? No, the thing was like this house, it started off as like an 800 um, square foot little like tiny, you know, colonial house. And they added on and added on over the years and it's 5,000 some square feet now. And there's three different kinds of heating in here. We've got an oil furnace, we've got fireplaces, um, and then we've got a regular um, air furnace, regular, like a more recent HVAC system. Uh, Um, But the the ductwork only existed in certain parts of the house. And in the original part of the house, they actually have wooden ductwork. Um, so that's really dating back. Yeah. Um, but we, we weren't able to, to run ductwork, which was, uh, you know, where we ended up. So we, we bought a whole bunch of those, um, mini split units and, you know, like you find them in a lot of hotels and they're very popular over in Europe, not, not quite as much over here that they, they're picking up. Um, but it, it's actually kind of nice. Like I didn't want to do it originally cause I just, I figured it would be unsightly, but you know, every room in our house has its own thermostat and its own heat mm-hmm. and its own air conditioning now. Um, and they're, they're totally quiet and they're, they're crazy efficient. Um, so it's, you know, it grows on you really fast. I, I like it. So that's, that's what we've got going on now. Cool. Cool. Hopefully you won't need it too much. <laughs> we don't, yeah. have, we don't run our AC all that often, but it is nice to have it, you know, when we need it. Yeah. Just, you know, those couple of days out of the year. Well, you know, from what I was told a couple of days out of the year, but I'm looking at the, the calendar and the forecast and it's like 80 something for the next week. So <laughs> global warming, it's, it's here to stay, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What are you working on? Uh, just writing same book. I'm about halfway through now. Um, Patterson had me create an outline and I'm writing this book for Kristen. Um, and, and it's going well. Um, it's, Good. you know, it's a slightly different process than usual. Um, but, but I'm enjoying it and I'm working on a second book in the afternoon. So that's, that's going good too. Um, we're out on submission for a book right now. And that that's a crazy experience because everybody's working from home. Oh, um, yeah. you know, like Kristen, um, submitted to some editors and didn't find out until like a week or two later that they had been laid off and they're no longer there. Oh, wow. Um, cause there's just, there's not a whole lot of dialogue happening between, between everybody. Um, but the process is it's still ticking forward. It's just a little bit slower than it, than it was before. 
Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Um, I want to throw out something just to clarify from, from last week, I was talking about, um, how I gave away copies of forsaken and haunted houses. And I got a bunch of emails from different people just, you know, trying to figure out how to go about doing that. Um, and first of all, yeah, I did give away about 800,000 copies that, um, but this is where it got confusing. It wasn't all at that one haunted house in Pittsburgh. I'm not sure if I mentioned this or not, but I ended up with 12 different haunted houses around the country, um, over, over the years. Like I just, I keep picking up more. So, um, if, if this were a normal year, what I would be doing right about now is reaching back out to all the haunted houses I worked with in the past and see if they want to do it again. Um, and then try to bring on some more. Um, I even did universal, um, Hollywood studios down in Florida once, um, cause they've, they've got a ridiculous amount of foot traffic. Um, but the, the real question I was getting is how did I give them away? Um, and I actually used, um, Smashwords for most of them. Um, cause Smashwords allows you to create a coupon code. So I've just printed up a business card with a, a URL on it and it was a dedicated URL uh, and they had a coupon code. So they would just go in there, punch in that code and it would, it would give them the, the free download. Um, I did quite a few that way. And I also used uh, book funnel, book funnel um, yeah, that's what I was yeah because I, I wanted to see what, you know, if I could capture email addresses mm -hmm. and, and that worked really well because I got a, a ridiculous amount of email addresses. Um, but what I quickly learned and, and anybody who's, you know, given away something for an email address has probably realized this. A lot of these people will not pay for a book. Yeah, they're, they're totally Freakins. fine getting one. Yeah, yeah, they're fine getting one for free. But you know, when you email them about an upcoming release, like you, you know, I, I saw 5000 people drop off my email list, like all in one <laughs> shot. And, you know, when I did the cross reference, I figured out where they came from. So it, it's a nice way to bulk up your list. But it's just it's not worthwhile. And, and frankly, you end up paying for that you're using MailChimp or one of these other yeah, guys, and they're, they're charging for every cent. So yeah, um, so it adds up. Yeah. So what, what's going on with you? Well, I'm, uh, I'm also, um, kind of heading to the end of the manuscript that, that uh, you've been helping me with. And I'm, I'm down to like the, on the main storyline, I'm down to like the, the ending. And uh, I kind of had, I, I can't say too much detail because it's, it's pretty story specific, but uh, the characters kind of changed the story on me, which I, which has <laughs> been crazy. Like, it's just not something like, it's not how I've operated before, you know, just writing the dialogue and the characters. But right. what happened was I thought I was writing sort of a Lord of the Flies style story where I was going to have two groups pitted against each other. Uh -huh. but, but the story I'm, I'm, I think I'm telling now is what's real and what isn't. Uh, I, I have a force within this story. And I think if I do it right, I can, I can withhold that from the reader all the way till the end. I can keep them guessing all the way till the end on, what, on if th what's happening is real or not. And it was, it was just an exciting development, not something I expected. And it came out of doing the, the character work. That's, that's where it came out of. Well, that's um, I, early on, I, I learned to, to trust the characters. You know, even if you've got a solid idea of where you want your story to go, if the characters start pulling you in another direction and you fight them on it, um, the, the writing just, it, it, it comes across in the writing. It's very, very bland. Um, so it's definitely worth chasing those as long as you can keep your ending in mind. Like you, you don't want to go off in the weeds and, you know, add another 200,000 words to the yeah. book. Um, but, you know, you, you, that, that's where you come up with the best stuff. I think you, you let the characters take you in a particular direction. It, it might take you somewhere where you, you know, in, like in your case, someplace you weren't planning on going, um, but it'll, you know, take take the whole book and elevate it. Um, so it's definitely, definitely worth chasing. Yeah. I, I, I got to be honest with you. I'm like, I'm glancing over a lot of the stuff you're sending me on these and, and I'm just kind of making sure you're sticking to your outline, but I'm trying not to weigh in at this point <laughs> because I don't want to slow you down because you, you've got a really good pace going. Yeah. Um, last thing I want to do is, is get you to throw on the brakes, but um, so far it looks pretty good. Cool, man. Thanks. I, I'm excited about it. I said it, it was definitely sort of an epiphany. It was this moment where I was like, I've got one character who's incredibly skeptical and she's sort of a loud mouth and kind of brash and it was her that kind of opened it up for me and i was like wow that that was really cool completely unplanned not in the outline 
Oh, we all know that person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't, you are that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, nice. So who do we got today? Who, who are we talking to today? We, we have the illustrious president of the HWA, John Palisano, on today. Um, very excited to hear from this guy because he took over from Lisa and Lisa took over from from Rocky and and, and Lisa she did a phenomenal job. I, I have no idea how these people are able to keep their heads on their shoulders right. and and not pull their hair out because um, they they they're they're wrangling cats for sure and 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 not in on small scale. I mean it's worldwide. Um, and, but they, they were able to do it and he's, he picked up the, the reins and he's doing a fantastic job. Um, especially now with everything going on. Yeah. You know, it almost strikes me as, uh, the responsibilities of a politician. So I, I have a friend who ran for local office and, and he served for four or five years and he got paid like $11,000 a year. And like the amount of work he had to do was just not even close to what he was compensated with. And I, I get the feeling that these organizations, the people who are uh, officials and running them, man, hats off to them. Like, I think they're doing way more work than what they're getting compensated for. And I think John's definitely in that boat. Yeah, that's that's always the case. I, I, I was on my HWA board down in Florida and it's the same same kind of deal. And I, I got roped in, roped in because I was a chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm. So they knew that I understood rules and regulations. <laughs> um, so, so they brought me in and, you know, it was they, they, they told me, oh, it's, you know, one meeting every two weeks, you know, you only spend a couple hours on it. And before you know it, you know, you get sucked in and you're, you're spending more time and more time and more time. And, and like you said, you, the compensation just isn't there for it. Um, and it, it's a lot of work um, and, and it's hard not to win. Like once you get involved in, in that type of thing, it's very difficult to, to walk away from it. Um, it takes a very special kind of person, I think, to, to be able to do that long term. Yeah, totally agree. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to talking to John and uh, see what he has to say about what's happening in the HWA these days. All right. Well, let's bring him on. I would love to ask you what's going to seem like a slightly personal question and you don't have to answer it, but are you still having terrible nightmares? Always. Always. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, I've always been um, plagued with, with bad nightmares since I was a little boy. Uh, very vivid, very, very terrifying um, dreams. And in most cases, it's things and places I've never even been. Um, and I see a lot of people I've never even seen before. and I can never put it together. Um, and I learned really young that if I drew it or if I wrote it down, it wouldn't ruin my day totally. <laughs> wow. And I still do that. I still have very insane, vivid, weird dreams with people I've never met and places I've never been. And it's really, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it is what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, uh, the obvious question is, you know, how, how is this working? How is this making it into your fiction? I mean, it, clearly it has to, but I'm curious as to how, you know, how, how you go from dream to on the page or what aspects of it do you use or don't use? Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, um, a couple of things. Um, at first I was trying to write it down like fiction style. I tried to write down my dreams and I realized, man, that would take me like an hour. You know, some of them were very intense and I just didn't have that time to do that every single day or the patients. So I, I went to sketching and I found if I could sketch something in a minute, like the main scene of the dream, and then I would remember the entire dream that way. I could just like 
you know, sketch the main weird person or something in the environment. And, you know, later on, or even a month later, I could recall it. Um, so, you know, I'm not a great artist. <laughs> People would <laughs> laugh. I mean, if they saw my sketches, I'm not great, but they do the job. And, and, uh, and, and tons of my fiction, these dreams have, have been used. Um, in my novel nerves, the entire first scene of nerves, um, came to me in a dream. I saw this guy sitting at a desk with uh, silver sunglasses and he put out his hand and his nerves shot out of his fingers at me and went into my body. And I felt them going into my body and tearing me into, you know, going through me and everything. And that started that entire book. Wow. And it was extremely, yeah, it was extremely vivid. And I'd never met this guy. I knew his name. And then as the nerves went into me in my dream, I started seeing this entire world and saw these characters and, and, and the, the flood of the Fishman's uh, studio and everything in, in Louisiana. I just saw everything in a flash. And the novel was there. It just kind of came to me. Um, and that, that happens very often for me with, with some of my, my stories, too. Huh. Uh, same thing happened with Dust of the Dead, where... Um, I was walking down the street and there was dust everywhere and I saw zombies and the dust was coming off of these zombies. And it, I realized, Oh my God, you know, the, the, the germs from that dust is going to do worse things than the zombies are. Um, and that entire book came to me very quickly in that dream. So. <laughs> now, are you a, uh, are you a lucid dreamer? Do you know you're in the dream while you're in it? Usually. Yeah. Now, now I do pretty most often I do. And can you, and, and can you change what's happening in it? Usually? No, no, I don't try to because usually I feel like I've had really good luck with them kind of coming pretty formed and I just want to be along for the ride. <laughs> uh, they're like these like virtual reality movies horrific usual movies and uh um they're they're you know i've embraced my dark side so i enjoy them now they don't quite scare me yeah <laughs> as much as they did i'm like oh cool something crazy is happening here what what freaky thing is is being bestowed upon me <laughs> yeah i mean i i'm sure that every writer has you know, subliminal thoughts that work that get into manuscripts and projects. And, and I'm sure dream sequences are a big part of that, but it's, it sounds as though you're getting entire scenes. Oh yeah. And stories too. Sometimes, um, there's been, uh, several stories that came pretty much fully formed and, um, uh, even, even entire paragraphs of text have come. I could see them sometimes in my dreams and I, I write them down. I'm like, wow. And I wake up, that's, that works. <laughs> now, do you, editing. do you have to fight with your editor? Like, <laughs> does your editor saying like, Oh, we need to cut the scene. And you're like, no, that was, that was my dream. It has to stay. <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never had that happen. Um, <laughs> um, and in, in, in all of my books and short stories, I've never had an entire scene cut. Um, so not yet, but I would fight for it. <laughs> I, you cannot take that. That that was divinely inspired. You cannot lose that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I was uh, I was reading an interview with you one time, and uh, you said that knowing the characters is everything in my process. So how do you get to yeah. know your characters? 
Well, um, I studied acting in college. Um, I, I went to Emerson College in Boston, and when they asked me what I wanted to do, I said, well, I want to direct films. I want to make, you know, direct movies and stuff. And they said, do you have any acting experience? I said, no. They said, great. You're going to take acting every semester you're here because if you're going to direct films, you're going to have to know how to work with actors. Oh, and you're going to take speech, too. Um, they had a thing called voice and articulation where they taught you how to be a public speaker. And they were the two most mortifying, terrifying, <laughs> knuckle-shaking classes, I've, things I've ever done in my life. Because <laughs> I'm an introvert by nature. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it. And um, they were terrifying. Every speech I gave was terrifying. Every time I was in the acting class, I was terrified. But I gained so many tools. Um, and in acting, to circle back around to how I do my characters, there's a thing that I learned um, that actors do, which is called the 50 questions. Now, with the 50 questions, you start off basic, like what's the hair color, what's your name, things like that. They're basic, how tall am I, do I have any diseases, do I have all my limbs, you know, that sort of thing. And then it gets deeper, you know. You can get very deep with them, like, you know, do, you know, do I have any, you know, psychological issues, you know. What's my backstory? Where, where where did I grow up? What was my favorite ice cream? A lot of this stuff doesn't seem pertinent, but by the time you get to the end of these questions, you know this character. And you, you can inhabit them very quickly. So if you if you know that, and they're walking down the street, and they see a meteor falling out of the sky or something, or a spaceship, you know how they're going to react. And then if you've done the same work for other characters... When those two meet, you kind of know what they're going to do. You kind of know how they're going to react to one another. And I don't do I don't do fifty questions for every single character in the book because I'd never get anything done. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, you can you can do you know basic, the ten questions, twenty questions. And um, I think that that is a huge part of my process with developing uh, characters. And then the story kind of unfolds. I you know, for instance, in Dust of the Dead, the character of Mike. I did that with him and I inhabited him and I walked around, you know, it was set in, in Los Angeles. So I went to some of the streets and I walked around and I, I was like him. And I said, what would he do? Where would he go to eat? You know, where little things. Yeah. So when I was writing the book, when the zombies came out of a restaurant, I kind of knew, you know, what was going on. I, I knew where his head was at. Yeah. So, yeah. I highly recommend you can Google, you know, actor 50 questions or you can, you know, grab like on acting by Stella Adler or um, uh, David Mamet has some amazing uh, his book on directing, believe it or not, has some great acting tips in it. And I think it's a really valuable thing for writers because, you know, we're play acting. You know, we're acting on the page. We're creating stories on the page. And I think it really helps. Yeah, that that's a great strategy. I love that. Uh, when yeah when do you so let's say now you've gotten some inspiration from a dream uh you're doing your 50 questions or or some version of that uh what does the writing look like for you do, are, are you writing every day do you write in the morning or do you have to schedule it how's that work well um things have changed uh, drastically i used to like to write in the morning when i first got up for an hour or so, but it's just not realistic for me anymore. Um, I have a, a, a son going 13 going on 14. I, you know, have a job. Um, I'm a caregiver. So I do a lot of, you know, my mornings are usually pretty busy. Um, so I have to steal time um, here and there. 
because and usually by the end of the day, I'm so mentally drained, I don't have much in me to write. So I steal five minutes, 10 minutes here, half an hour there. Um, and mostly I use my phone. And I know a lot of people have gone to this route, but it has been a lifesaver to be able to, to work through the phone. And then I can, I can edit later when I'm tired. I can do that when I'm, <laughs> I don't have to create stuff. Right. And it adds up really quick. It adds up quick because the mind is working when you're doing other things. If I'm waiting for a doctor's appointment for the woman I'm giving, you know, a caregiver for, I have 20 minutes, I can get some stuff done or I have time to kind of think, you know, and you can focus. You say, I have 20 minutes here. I'm going to knock out half a chapter, you know, or I'm going to get to this next plot point. They got to get from the spaceship to the rescue craft. And I'm going to knock that scene out right now. That's and I give myself little mini goals like that. And you can do a lot of damage in even five minutes. You could do a few, you could do 250 words in five minutes if you're focused. Are, are you typing with your thumbs? Are you dictating? Are you putting your phone into a keyboard device? Um, I, I'm a, I'm a finger. Yeah. Thumbs and fingers. And there's a, um, uh, you can kind of on the iPhone, you can kind of draw the word across the letters on the keyboard and it types it for you. So, so you can draw a circle from the T to the H to the E and it does the, and it, you can work really fast that way. Once you get used to it, um, you can get a lot of raw text down. Um, yeah. I usually don't dictate because I'm usually in noisy environments and people think I'm nuts and I'm not comfortable. I don't, I, I don't think, I think faster than I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people, like if you come to the HWA LMA meetings, like there's a lot of times where I'll, I'll like, go like, blah, blah, blah. <gasps> <laughs> and the people like laughing because you're like you're like almost stuttering because you, you talk so fast sometimes. I'm like, yeah, because my brain works so quickly, you know, at times when I'm when I'm on like that. So definitely just, you know, typing is more ideal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's cool. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to talk about uh, the Bram Stoker and, and, and the fact that you're president of the HWA. And I so I thought before we get to that, though, I wanted to ask you a question that might not seem so obvious, but I want you to answer this the best way you can. Why is Night of the Living Dead so important? That's a great question. Um, Night of the Living Dead is, is, was a catalyst on, on so many levels. Number one, the story was a universal story that kind of spoke to a lot of people who were feeling anxiety. And it was deeper than of its time because it spoke to anxieties that were happened before and even ones that are happening today. And I think that's one of the, one of the main reasons that it was so important. The other one was that it was made outside of a studio system that was very kind of cold and serene and, and fine, but was kind of a little bit, there was a distance. And with Night of the Living Dead, a lot of people were drawn to it because it was so genuine and you can tell it was really kind of on the ground, you know, guerrilla style kind of you're living vicariously through these characters. You're right there. There wasn't a studio sheen to it to protect you. And I think people were really drawn to that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, and, and the last thing was, was the story itself um, subverted, subverted a lot of expectations in a really great way. Um, especially with the ending, yes, and the casting. The cast, of course, was really way ahead of its time, but but the ending was, was really subverted and really spoke to people. Yeah, it was very. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, go ahead then. Uh, you know, fast forward a little over 50 years and uh, I know you were, you were quoted in a Vanity Fair article about elevated horror. So uh, yeah. for, for the layperson, what is elevated horror and, and why should we care about it now? Okay, so it's definitely a controversial term because a lot of horror people don't like it because they think <laughs> horror should just be elevated to begin with. Well, I think what it's addressing is we had a very big period from the 80s through the 90s and early aughts that a lot of horror was serial killers and Friday the 13th and Saw. And, you know, it was kind of a, a, a you know, a very visceral, raw, violent form. And I think elevated horror says people like this is not that this is something that is addressing something a lot more human it's not about murder it's not about you know the pursuit of virgins in the forest um it's it's talking about other kinds of horror in life that aren't that um like jordan peele's amazing work where he's addressing race um the 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 wonderful um folk horror that's coming out that's addressing a lot of socio um, political norms, like in Midsommar, say what you want about it, but it was a really interesting horror piece about um, community and interpersonal relationships was really the metaphor there. And I think that's telling the audience, like, hey, we're not here to gross you out. This is not blood and guts. This is something we're going to be exploring things that are scary that aren't blood and guts and violence necessarily. Yeah. I totally agree with that. It's uh, it's definitely got more depth to it, um, and like you said, it's it's a controversial term. I know a lot of our colleagues, uh, whether they're in the HWA or not, are, uh, are it's kind of a polarizing idea. But I, I'm kind of of the mind that if it gets if it gets more people watching and reading horror, then I think that's a good thing. I I, I couldn't agree more. And the fact that it's getting so much mainstream coverage. And and no, I mean, and it's serious. No, you don't get any any bigger note than Jordan Peele winning an Academy Award, right? For 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 a horror film, which we haven't seen since Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. So I think that 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 speaks very highly. That hey, I'm okay with this term. This is going to break down a lot of walls and bring people back to the dark side that you know were turned off by the gross outs. Yeah. That love, you know, they, they, they loved the silence of the lamps. They loved all those films. They're fascinating, you know. Um, and they, they loved Wicker Man, and they thought those were like really interesting, brilliant, you know, metaphoric, literary type stories. And I think, you know, a lot of the folks who weren't attracted and really, really were turned off by Saw and Friday the 13th and stuff, they, they're loving things like, you know, Hereditary and um, those sorts of films. Yeah. which is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Should be. <laughs> yeah. Uh you were you were a Bram Stoker award winner in 2016 and you were vice president under Lisa Morton and now you're president of the Horror Writers Association. Uh so how are things going for you now in the organization and and uh are, are you settled in? Do you feel like uh you have some direction for the for the uh, organization? Yeah, absolutely. Um and you know, history speaks um, in my favor here because I started out, man, well over 15 years ago as a guy that was, you know, helping to fill goodie bags at the convention who'd hide at the back of the sofa <laughs> banquet because he couldn't afford the ticket and would just kind of quietly just watch the goings on. And um, slowly but surely, um, my volunteer work led to all these positions. I'm still kind of like, 
feel like that quiet guy at the back of the room. And I'm like, what the heck am I doing on this stage? And everyone's asking me all these questions and, oh my gosh, I'm the president here. (laughs) (laughs) But I did, I, you know, I did, I was a trustee for many years um, under, you know, ever since um, uh, Deborah LeBlanc and Gary Bronbeck and then uh, Rocky Wood. Um, And then um, when Rocky passed and Lisa um, took on the mantle of uh, president, she asked if I would, consider you know being anointed a uh, vice president because nobody would do it <laughs> <laughs> and i was told at the time like she said well if you put your name into the ring i know like you know a couple of, i'm not going to say names so she said well, there's two other people that are going to run for vice president so you probably won't even get elected but it would be good just to you know have more nominees and um they didn't run <laughs> <laughs> and i had already put my name in and i was like omg uh Wow. Okay, so here it goes. <laughs> and uh, so that's how that happened. Um, and, and here we are today. But as far as direction of the, of the organization, I love that we're, we're, we're moving away from just being known for the Bram Stoker Awards. There's a massive initiative, initiative into going um, for libraries and educational um, um, areas of the organization. And, and I think that's terrific and as it should be. And libraries especially are taking the place of independent bookstores. I mean, there's a lot of authors are doing library tours. And um, if I may mention a uh, story fest at the Westport library in Connecticut is an unbelievable event. They, their, their space is like as big as the Ritz in New York city. They have a huge stage. They clear everything out. They have full lighting and sound and video. It's a massive space. I think they, 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 they can fit a couple thousand people into that auditorium. And, um, that's a library and they're paying authors to go. They're selling books. They're having massive events with huge authors this year. I mean, they have Neil Gaiman coming this year for goodness sake. <laughs> um, and, and the libraries out in Los Angeles and everywhere are having great author events. And our push, we're doing um, librarians day every year where we have an event for librarians to come and um, they invite guests and publishers are sending arcs of our members books. So librarians can order them and know what they're about. And we're doing a standalone this year because the UK Stoker Con, um, the UK has a really bad library system right now. So they really couldn't support it. But um, next year in Denver, we'll be doing it again at the actual convention. So those kinds of areas are really exciting. And, and it says we're a lot more than a support system for an awards um, you know, thing. And I, I'm going to take a quick aside here, and I know a lot of people don't agree with me on this, but I'm not a huge fan of awards for us. <laughs> um, I remember at, at one of the Grammys, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam came up and he said, you know, this is cool that we won it, but I just don't get that there's, you know, only one best song of the year. You know, there's so many great songs being released all the time and, you know, we appreciate it, but, you know, whatever you know and i kind of feel like that too with a lot of these awards because it's like oh there's only one best short story there's only one best novel and you know a lot of times they don't everybody's opinion on what what that is is different and there's so much good work i I wish there was a way to celebrate things that wasn't just isolating a few good works that just highlighted a lot more works but that's just me (laughs) i i like that approach i i i think uh you know it's awkward to think, you know, it's not as though artists are lining up and competing 
in like an athletic contest where there's a determined winner. It, it really is highly yeah. subjective. And, and, and I agree with you that, you know, it's, and, and then to say there's only one for, for each category is, is extremely difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. It does, you know, and then, and then, you know, people are pitted up against each other and um, it's, you know, it just, it's just, anyway, <laughs> the flip side and, and what I, what, what I do support is it does give you a reason to, you know, hit all the PR outlets and, and to kind of say, Hey, we're still here. The genre is still active. We're still going strong. These are some of the works that, you know, we're heralding and, you know, there's some amazing work being done. Check it out. And for that, it's great. Cause you know, you, you need to have a presence in, you know, all the trades and, 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 and in that regard, and it definitely helps, and it helps with the you know publishers. You know, things get nominated, they do reach out to those authors, and it can really be a benefit in that way. So it's you know, it's a positive. Yeah, and it's know. it's only one of many things. Like you know, as a member, I, I'm aware of much more than than non-members would be. And the HWA is like you said, it's more than StokerCon. It's more than you know the Bram Stoker Awards, and. Uh, one example I found that I was uh, hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about is the hardship loans that the HWA offers. Yeah. Um, well, the hardship loans is, is, is a service that has been going for quite a while, and it, it, it's helped a lot of people, a lot of authors in, in, in dire straits. And, you know, being an artist, being a writer especially, seems to be one of the most hazardous professions ever <laughs> i can't tell you how many people like oh i'm sick or i got this that or anything and there's no insurance and there's no safety net you know when you're a freelancer a lot of people have day jobs but still they count on the writing income and um it's a, it's a great service that we offer our members so if anybody's not familiar um you would write to me president of horror.org and say i need a loan a hardship loan and you know what am i looking for you know, looking uh, to do with it, like I, I have bills or I'd lost my job or, and then you'd offer a repayment plan of some kind. Usually it starts a few months later at, you know, whatever you can afford monthly for a year or two. Um, the biggest thing though, that we look for is what has somebody done for the HWA? <laughs> yeah. Um, just join the HWA and a week later you're like, Hey, can I get a loan? <laughs> it's kind of like, well, no, <laughs> but if somebody's been hearing and they're running the newsletter or something or they're running a chapter or even if they're a long you know long time member then we know like okay you know that's cool um so it's it's one of the many things and and, and to piggyback on that one of the things we're working on with, with um other writing organizations which is, is is exciting is group health insurance um so we're trying to get something like that going um it's looking really good right now we're talking to like sifwa and you know, romance and a couple of the other um, writing organizations to try and come together to offer all our members group insurance. That would be fantastic. And I'm sure that would yeah. get everyone, you know, lower rates as opposed to buying their insurance privately. Absolutely. I mean, even with, you know, the Affordable Care Act and everything, a lot of, right, you know, people don't always qualify for that and they have to get separate insurance or they have a special medical condition that they need a different plan for. And it's, it's something we're working really hard on. It's a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, you know, it's insurance after all. So <laughs> there's a lot to, we're trying to, to make this happen. So if anyone's listening and, and it doesn't pan out, 
don't kill me, but, <laughs> but we are trying to do our best to make it, uh, make it happen. Um, and it would not, it would not include any kind of increase in dues or anything like that. It would just be, you could buy into the plan if you want it. So hopefully fingers crossed, tentacles crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be fantastic. Definitely got my tentacles crossed here. Uh, I, sure. I, I sort of have, uh, one more question for you. And, uh, there's no right or wrong on this. I'm just curious, given your long history uh, and success as a writer and in, in, in the Horror Writers Association, where do you think the publishing industry is headed in the next, say, five or ten years? That's a great question. I think we're we're going to see a lot more of the same, and I think we're going to see um, a lot more emphasis on libraries and academics. Um, taking taking the place of a lot of our traditional um, promotional outlets. Um, I don't see the, the paper books going away anytime soon, and I don't see ebooks going away. I think they're still going to continue to grow. Um, I think there's a starving market, an unsatiable market for for great writing, and we're in a and we're in a golden age of that. Um, but in five to ten years, I, I just see see more of that. I think it's going to become even more um, refined as as we go um, we are seeing a, a big change in the way books are bought and sold and that's one of the the, the biggest points of concern is how are writers going to make money in five to ten years as the publishing companies are not doing the advances they once did uh, i'm pretty sure we're going to see people um making their living through those other methods like academics and through the libraries a lot of writers don't know this, and this is another thing we're trying to spread the word on, which is really important, is if your publisher is signed up correctly, when your book is checked out of a library anywhere in the country, you get a couple cents or something. And um, I think that's a, a source of income a lot of writers are going to be um, get really um, into once they can hook up with publishers that do that. Yeah. I, I agree. I think there's uh readers aren't going anywhere. I mean, there's definitely more competition, but we're, we're in a time where, uh, where good writing is still appreciated. Yeah. And it always will be. And, and, and on that note, um, I'm seeing, you know, I'm in, I'm in with a, a lot of kids all the time with my son and they're starving for real books. Um, a few years ago they went, they put their iPads down in class and went to the library and they all checked out books and they were thrilled. And I asked the little girl, I said, hey, you know, why aren't you reading on the iPad? The iPad's awesome. And she said, the iPad's great, but it's not real. <laughs> and she clutched the book to her chest and said, this is real. And right then and there, I knew, I said, wow, the kids, they got it. You know, it's this, they're, they're no different. You know, they love it too. You know, they're attaching to a real object. There's nothing like reading a real book, even hundreds and hundreds of years later. <laughs> so... I don't think that's going to change. Their generation still loves it. So that's really encouraging. Job security for us, too. <laughs> <laughs> At least for the whole generation. <laughs> all right. That was uh, John Palisano with uh, Crazy Dreams and All. <laughs> well, you know, we've talked about this one, too. And, and like, I always tell people, write down your dreams. 
um, write down your dreams. Or if you get an idea for your book in the middle of the night, whatever it is, I always, you know, I, I used to keep a notepad next to the bed. Now I just use a, a, a document uh, thing on my iPhone and app. Um, but, but definitely write it down. And, and like, he's, you know, he, he kind of touched on a good point. Like a lot of times writing it down helps you interpret what's going on and your brain, you know, is, you're, you're having that dream because your brain is trying to work out some kind of problem to begin with. Um, so just going through that little bit of an exercise, it's a, it's a stress reliever. Yeah, it certainly is. And I, I, I think you're, I think you have the same thoughts on this, but I'm, I, the older I get, the more I value sleep as a way to work through plot problems or idea generation. <laughs> like I go to bed at night and I'm, I'm thinking about something and then I wake up in the morning and I almost always have like a different perspective or a different idea on it. I, I think sleep is so important on so many levels. Well, it gives you the chance to hit that reset button. Um, it, this is a weird time to be talking about it because our toddler, she's got her last tooth coming in and she was up like I'm a baby monitor. We both heard her crying at like three 30 this morning. Wow. Um, and there's nothing worse. Like she, she doesn't just start with a little whimper. It's like a full on, like I just got hit by a train kind of scream like that. So like that, that woke us both up, both up and we, we haven't been to sleep since. So, Ouch. um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, a lot of times you'll go to sleep, you know, you, you're thinking about a particular problem in your book and, and you know, it's, it's just a complete mess and you're trying to figure it out and you wake up in the morning and you've either got the answer or you realize that it wasn't really a problem at all. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't as complicated as you thought it was, but it, you know, it's, it gives your body a chance to hit that reset button in, in your brain for sure. Yeah. What's your, uh, opinion on the, uh, term elevated horror? Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of it. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of labels, but I guess you have to call it something. Um, but, but it's definitely out there. I mean, movies like it follows is one of my favorites. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled that we're, we've moved away from the, you know, the slasher stuff, you know, Halloween and, and Friday the 13th. But then again, you got Stephen King out there tweeting that he's going to write a, 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 a book about Jason from Jason's point of view. So who knows that that may come back. Um, but, <laughs> but if he did, I, it, it probably would be elevated, like, you know, similar to what you're saying. It's, you know, horror. I think that's where it should be. I mean, people, People, you know, the scares tactics that were used in some of those movies that it worked for a little while. Um, but it, it, you know, for a movie to me to be scary, like you should be able to watch it without the sound. Um, one of my favorite pastimes uh, is to watch black and white movies, you know, like old horror movies, and you, you don't need the sound for them. And they didn't have special effects back then. They didn't have these huge, you know, musical numbers to move it along. Uh, it, it all came down to facial expressions, camera shots, and I, and I feel like a lot of that's coming back. And I think a lot of that's coming because of the um, the indie film movement. Um, you know, budgets are forcing it. You know, Hollywood in a lot of ways has gotten lazy. Oh, we'll just CGI that. We'll make it happen. Um, but, you know, a CGI car crash isn't as good as a, a real car crash, you know, and it, and that kind of translates into every aspect of it. Computers just, are, they're 99% there, but they're not quite good enough to fake it just yet on any level. Um, so I think horror, you know, is being forced because horror is, you know, it's one of those things that a lot of people love, uh, particularly indie filmmakers, and they're being forced to create these these uh, movies on a, a very limited budget, um, which means they have to rely on on these other things to, to actually tell the story. Um, and th or movies like Hereditary, I mean, once a, a big studio gets a hold of it, it can still be done right. Yeah, yeah, good point. Now, we recorded the interview with John, uh, and since then, there's been some developments on the group insurance plan he was talking about. I know you had some specific updates you wanted to discuss about that. So what's happening with this, with the organizations that are offering the group insurance programs? Well, it looks like they got it together. Um, I just looked at the website before we, we sat down to talk um, and they're going to be putting some plans out there this fall. That's what it says. And it's going to notify all the members. Um, it seems to be something very similar to what ITW did. 
um, where they partnered with an insurance company that was able to offer insurance out to all their different members. Um, and to, to be honest with you, though, like we did this through ITW last year. Um, and my wife is very good at, at seeking out insurance. And like she found a plan through ITW. And then she went out and just Googled that exact same plan. And she was able to pick up the same plan for cheaper. Um, so, you know, if you go back years ago, you know, if a giant corporation got insurance, you know, let's say they've got 5,000 employees and they went out and got insurance, they would get incredibly good rates with those insurance companies. Um, but, but the rules have changed. So they're not able to do that anymore. So it seems like being able to walk in there with a group of 500 or 5,000 or whatever it is would be beneficial, but it doesn't change anything at, at this point. The insurance is insurance, you know, regardless of where you're coming from, whether you're buying it as a couple or you're buying it as a, a big giant group. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping that changes. I mean, it, cause organizations like this, I think, you know, it, it definitely simplifies the process from the insurance company standpoint, because now they're dealing with, you know, more or less like a corporation and it just rather than, you know, a bunch of individual families. Um, so it's cheaper on their, their from their standpoint to, to offer it this way. Um, those savings should, should get passed on to the consumer, but current legislation doesn't allow for that. And I know it's tied up in court. Um, and you know, who knows when that'll actually get resolved, who knows what the insurance situation is going to even be like. And, you know, by the end of this year, um, but we'll see. I mean, definitely check it out for sure. I mean, if you're an HWA member, um, the same company is working with a couple other of the, the writers associations um, that are out there. Um, so check it out. But once you do find a plan that fits, you know, get out there and just try to find that same plan or something similar, you know, get, get a couple different sources and just make sure you're not overpaid. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I, I remember working for several organizations and there was uh, there was negotiation power in having the organization deal directly with the insurance company and, and you sort of got, you know, discounts and bulk rates. But if that's not happening anymore, then, uh, yeah, that's really unfortunate. And it kind of defeats the purpose of pulling your resources. Yeah. And I'm in this weird place where, you know, I, I write full time. So I have to go out and get insurance. Um, my wife, you know, she's, she stays at home as well. So we don't have, you know, like a day job that we can fall back on to get any of that. Um, we, we, our income is too high to, to qualify for the Affordable Care Act. Um, so, you know, like last year, we, we were paying an insane amount of money for, for frankly, crappy insurance. Yeah. Um, you know, and if we were a little bit older, we would probably end up having to pay more. I mean, we, it, our coverage is just more or less a little bit above catastrophic. You know, if something nasty happens, we're covered, but for the most part, we're out of pocket on everything. And what's really sad is I'm finding that like, if we go to the doctor, like I just had an annual physical, I went in there and told them that I don't have insurance because I wanted to see what the cost would be. And it was 25 bucks for the visit. <laughs> You know, like I know if I gave them my insurance card, they would have probably run every test under the sun and probably yeah. run up a you know couple thousand dollar insurance bill. And, and frankly, you know, that's that's the problem. You know, that's that, that's why it, oh, it, it costs so much across the board. Um, that's a whole other show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John, John is such a great guy, though. He was so entertaining, uh, helpful, informative. Um, a lot of great stuff in there. I mean, we didn't, we're not, you know, going to have time to touch on everything, but talking about the way the HWA is partnering with libraries and how that's all changing. And uh, it just, a, it, it's, it feels like there's a nice positive movement within the organization right now. Yeah, the library thing is huge. And I belong to a couple of writers associations, and that's the only one that seems to really be focusing on that. Um, the last StokerCon that I went to, um, Dacre and I, we gave a presentation to all the librarians that were in attendance. Um, it was like a day or two ahead of the actual conference. Um, and, and, you know, we saw significant orders come back because these librarians went back to their libraries and they, they bought the book. Um, I, that, that's huge. And I think a lot of authors, they, they glance over, you know, the buying power of librarians or library, the library system across, across the board. 
Um, you know, so I, I've got a heavy focus on things like Ingram Spark and Baker and Taylor, just making sure I can get my books, physical copies into these, these different libraries and available to them. Um, cause it's, it's a revenue source. I think a lot of authors just don't, don't look at. Yeah. Yeah. True. Awesome. So I hope you guys all enjoyed that interview with John. Uh, who do we have on the docket for next week? Ooh, that's an excellent question, and I haven't looked. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll, th- I'll pick it up here. I know who we have. Uh, we have okay. Mr. Mark Dawson next week. Oh, okay. I think I've heard of that guy. Yeah, have you heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> did, did he clear it with James Blatch? Yeah, he got James' approval to come on. Um, so we worked through James's people to get to Mark, and we, and we got Mark. So uh, I'm excited to have him on the show. Yeah, Mark. Mark is always fun to follow because he's he's always you know him and I think very much alike. I mean, when we first met, uh, James actually pulled me aside after a panel that that Mark and I were both on, and he's like, "You and Mark have very similar you know, thoughts on on the industry. You should definitely talk." Um, and and it's so true. And even what what Mark is doing right now, I mean, he's he's paying out of his own pocket to translate his books into to foreign languages and selling them in these different markets. That's fantastic. Um, you know, he just worked out a deal with a publisher where you know he's got print books coming out um right now in the UK, and I think it sounds like in the next couple of months or the next year over here in the States um, where he's able to retain his ebook rights. I mean, he is a smart, shrewd business guy. Um, so I can't, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Yeah. He's, he serves no master. Like he, he no, sort of no. does what he does and, uh, and the, the rest of the world has to kind of fit into that. And that's no. really admirable. You, fran- you frankly, you don't have to in this industry. I mean, you could take a look at any particular part that somebody else is doing for you. And if you put some brain power behind it, you can find a way to do it on your own. And a lot of times you can capitalize on it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. So uh, next week, yeah. Self-publishing show, Mark Dawson. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.